Welcome to She, They, Us, a podcast about making room in housing for women and gender diverse people. My name is Andrea Reimer, and I was elected to Vancouver City Council from 2008 to 2018. I teach about power and policy at the University of British Columbia. I'm a longtime community activist living in Vancouver, and I will be your host for this podcast, which is brought to you by the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. This is our last episode in the She, They, Us podcast series. At the end of episode seven, we were talking about solutions, and we are going to continue that today, starting where we left off with Krista Piltz, Executive Director at Westminster Housing Society. You may remember that they are a housing society that was founded by the United Church in Winnipeg that wanted to do what it could to make a difference for housing in their community. After my first interview with her, Krista was in touch and said that she had more to say because she felt like she hadn't got into some of the deeper issues. Let's get into them. I look back on my own relationships with gender diverse or LG and LGBTQ2 individuals. And I think to myself, I think part of the strain on the relationship was my own role in not understanding that difference is good or that difference is needed, that difference is equality. And yeah, I really hope that we can get there and find a way to manifest that in our housing models. And I think we can, and I, and I will work really hard to, you know, to manifest that, but it's going to take a lot of public support and it's going to take a lot of public support to understand that to have a strong education system, everybody needs to contribute. If we want a strong public health system, everybody needs to contribute. If we want a strong housing system, everybody needs to contribute. It can't just be everybody speaking, preaching to the choir, so to speak. All nonprofits that are in housing, they understand the issues. Government, I would say at various levels, also very much understands the issues. And there is not a lot of resistance. I think the resistance comes from the wider public mindset that says, wait a second, hmm, maybe maybe uh, that person should just be more like me instead of somebody is not like me. They have a different life path. They have a different life experience. They have, they have a, a whole uh, beautiful different existence from, from me. And in that we find equality. And I think that is where the, the real part of public support has to be sort of targeted. And um, I, I, I'm really looking for ways within our organization to, to do that, but it's gonna be a long, I feel like it's a long road because so much of this mindset is so deeply entrenched and it's so normalized. And that, um, I think that is the work that we need to do as an organization. And, and out of that work will come different systems or different, you know, non-discriminatory leasing practices. That's where all the creative, you know, actionable sort of methods to make it happen will happen. But, but first really trying to get to the root of why is there this resistance to everybody having a house that feels like a home, that feels like a, a, a you know, a, a, you know, where, where somebody can have community permanence 
and feel like they belong. I think that is, I, I believe that, that, that housing is an exercise in applied ethics and the ethics that we bring to it um, and that values that we bring to it will manifest in how we develop housing. So I think, you know, in terms of Westminster housing, my approach is really about being a self-reflective individual um, and understanding how to develop um, myself so that how my work is reflected is a sort of manifestation of my own set of values and ethics and including the entire you know community this isn't just an exercise of one this is an exercise of all in that last segment krista has put out an amazing call to action but what does it look like in practice melissa campbell is someone who turned this philosophy into action in her community this is her story uh, my name is Melissa Campbell, and I am located in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I am the director of T5M Connect, which, or a director of T5M Connect, which is a brand new development company in, here in Edmonton. And I'm also the past president of the Nora Community League. I first met Melissa when she was interested in having a different kind of conversation about housing in her community. This is Melissa talking about the first time she tried to build housing. The development approval process was long and complicated and painful. <laughs> um, however, very successful in the end. So as you can imagine, there was a lot of pushback from the community to build this. We were taking two single family homes and putting in 16 homes on the same piece of land. So that's a big increase in density. Um, and it's a big change for the people who live in the surrounding area. So we needed to get a rezoning done for the land. We also chose to do, um, it's called DC2 in Edmonton. So it's kind of like a uh, like tailor-made zoning rather than one of the kind of standard zones because we couldn't actually do the community oriented uh, shape of the building within any of the standard zones. So that um, required extra engagement with the community, which we wanted to do anyways. So it, it, it was fine, but it did mean a lot more work and many more steps in order to get it approved. Um, so we did, you know, quite a bit above and beyond the community engagement that was required. Um, we actually started with putting a big sign up in front of in front of the building, in front of the land, and just saying like, what should we build here? With a big marker and people could write their ideas on the big sign. Uh, and we got some interesting replies, as you would imagine, but we actually got some really good ideas that we integrated into our plan. Um, so, uh, and then we did, you know, conversations with people in the community. There's, there's a group of neighbors that are pretty actively um, fighting infill development. So we actually met in one of their backyards with some neighbors to have a conversation. And, um, and then the city does their own engagement as well. Uh, it was during COVID, so it was an online engagement where people could write comments. It was certainly one of the most like greatest number of comments of any engagement that the city of Edmonton has ever done. Uh, very controversial, but interestingly, it was almost, it was like a 
almost a 50-50 split between supporters and detractors to the idea. So it, it caused a lot of conversation, to say the least. Um, well, yeah, the, I mean, it wasn't a conversation in terms of what happened online, but it created a lot of conversations. And then also we live in this neighborhood. So we just had a lot of conversations walking our dogs and talking to people. So uh, anyways, the, um, the result was it was unanimously supported by city council, the rezoning. Um, and, then, and then we were able to go ahead. Before we get into what Melissa was trying to change about the conversation about housing, I asked her if she could tell me a bit about what the usual process looks like. So those engagements are usually in response to a rezoning application. And um, the people who participate in them are usually the people who live in the surrounding areas who are primarily, you know, white, upper middle class, single family homeowners. The people who are going to live in the actual proposed building are never in the conversation. And uh, they're very focused on the the physical structure of what's going to be built. Um, so the conversation generally centers around building heights and setbacks and parking. And the idea of actually the fact that these are going to be homes for people is just completely missed in the conversation, in my opinion. So I wanted to hold a conversation about home, how we create homes for people in our city. This is Melissa talking about that conversation and how it was designed. Equity of voices was a really important core value of it. So there were no kind of expert speakers. Um, there weren't like panels that's, you know, the city planner put up and talked about, you know, their expertise on things. The idea was that everybody was coming with their own expertise and their own lived experience, regardless of what their background is. Um, and it was really interesting to see what came out of it and how people felt participating in this conversation and following this conversation. It was just really powerful to see uh, what happens when people actually sit down and listen to each other and have the time to speak and know that they're going to be listened to. And it was also intentionally created without a specific intended outcome. So there wasn't a project we were discussing and commenting on, and there wasn't a specific report that we were going to bring forward. Um, I intentionally left it open just to see what would happen. If you bring these people together and, and have a conversation, what will happen? And it was also a very different group of people than you would typically see at a city engagement about housing. Um, and it was designed that way. So uh, there were people that were specifically invited who are living in affordable housing or seeking affordable housing. I asked Melissa what difference it made to have people living with housing insecurity there. There was definitely a sense of the people who are living in affordable housing getting the sense that they were heard. Um, I didn't hear I, I didn't hear anything specifically from the other side of people listening to those stories. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the impact was on them specifically in relation to that piece of it. But the people, you know, there were a couple of people who are imminently at risk of losing their home, who were participating in this conversation. And one, one person specifically said, I, I feel like 
people care. Like that was what they took away from this conversation was that I was reminded there, there are people that care. So even just having a empathetic ear so and, and a, a platform for them to tell their story and have somebody care who is listening to their story, I think was really powerful. If you've been following our series, you'll know that in the last episode, I promised you that I would tell you what the most powerful tool we have to build housing is. And Melissa just did the big reveal. The most powerful tool is our voices. That's why for the past eight months, I've been working with the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing to help support women and gender diverse people to tell their stories of housing precarity and homelessness and organize opportunities in their communities for others to do the same. Not everyone you've heard in this podcast came out of the training program, but a lot of them do. It's been an incredible experience working with each of them. Here's Heather Hannanen Fairbairn from episode two on why she did the She, They, Us training. I found out about the She, They, Us skills sharing series through an advocate and activist in my community who is also the past president of the Community League. Her name is Melissa Campbell. Yes, that is the Melissa Campbell we just heard from. And she's just fabulous. And she's introduced me to a lot of new things and opened a lot of doors for me. And I was interested in taking the training because for me, housing has been my first love. In my grad degree, I did my thesis on housing for women in crisis. And now it's coming together more and more the intersection between disability, lack of housing, and poverty. And I'm a disability and anti-poverty activist, and housing is coming into the picture more and more clearly as more and more disabled people fall through the cracks. Well, it's powerful for people to share their story. It's also powerful for people to be heard. One of the most incredible things I've learned doing the She, They, Us campaign is that pretty much every single woman I've talked to and every single gender diverse person has a story to tell about a lack of access to safe housing. This is true of the people I talk to because of their lived experience, but it's also true of the academics, of the people attached to financial institutions, to developers working in our community. It's true of the people working on this podcast and of people that I just happened to talk to when they asked me what I'm doing and I told them about the She, They, Us project. But they have often never told these stories because of stigma and because they don't see their experiences reflected in media or government stories about housing. So these women and gender diverse people are made to feel that their housing experiences are about them failing at finding safe affordable, and appropriate housing when everyone else is succeeding. What we've learned over the past seven episodes is that if you're a woman or gender-diverse person leading a household and you're succeeding at safe, affordable, and appropriate housing, it's often despite government policies and funding, which don't take into account the barriers women and gender-diverse people face to housing stability. As I said at the beginning of the last episode, There is a mountain of research, studies, engagements, and other data and information that supports action, but it's still not happening. And that's why these stories are so important to be heard and to be shared. You met Lori Dietz in episode three. She also was part of the training and is a longtime member of the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. 
This is her talking about how she not only decided to use her voice in her community, but also lift up the voices of others. So the Waccamaw Aboriginal Community Association is the long name, and we call ourselves Waka for short. Most people know us as Waka, and we've been in existence for about, I would say, 15 years almost. I have been part of since 2015, I got on board, so about eight years now. And I started as a way to understand who I was as a First Nations person, because I really, I hadn't up until then. As a 60s group, I grew up in Moose Jaw, which is predominantly white, and I knew that I was, but, you know, I, I didn't participate in anything culturally. And um, like any great nonprofit, you join up, and next thing you know, you're chairing an organization. <laughs> so through my role with WACA, um, we have for quite some time, I've really worked on our partnerships within the community. So some of those organizations are with the Moose Poet Library, um, the Saskatchewan Festival of Words, and the Moose Public Library is together with the Art Museum. They're in the same building. So arts organizations. And um, I'm a bit of a social justice person and I do arts myself. And because of my housing experience, and you know, I did work in women's shelters uh, until I went back to school. So I had that experience, but now I'm seeing it in this, this arts world and this activist world. And um, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting dynamic to me because, you know, especially in the social services world where you get involved in government and you got to do things these certain ways, right? I think it's the nonprofit se sector is the, the aspect of it that the arts world has learned to kind of push some of those boundaries and how, how they work. And for me at WACA, that's one thing I've really been quite determined for quite some time is to find a different way that works for us how to operate and to me that is as a community organization and um because of my housing experience for us to put on a town hall for because one thing i know our community doesn't even understand what the issue is so how do we fix an issue without with without understanding so understanding how racism comes into play, how privileged, how the white benevolence in the helping sector um, uh, co comes into play. And people have to have a real understanding of the field they're working in and why they're there if they really truly want to help make a difference with the housing crisis and mental health crisis. Um, we got nothing but positive feedback about how much people learned. And it's just, it's not a normal thing that people can just sit and listen. So, it was a whole audience of people that could just sit and listen in a way that that information isn't given to them at hand. And for us that were speaking, I was able to share some of my story. I had some other new people in recovery, new people to walk out over the lunch hour in a non-scary environment. They shared their story. And then all of our speakers were lived experience First Nation speakers, some academic First Nation speakers. And to be given the stage all day interrupted was just a phenomenal experience, phenomenal experience. And the people that aren't speakers, they got to see that. And it was like, as a collective, we all shared our experience together. Maybe you aren't in a position to put on a town hall, but there's lots of other ways you can support women and gender diverse people to use their voice. You heard from Sarah Eftekar in a couple of episodes, 
but I haven't given you her proper introduction. Here it is. Um, my name is Sarah Eftikar, and uh, I'm originally from Iran, um, but I now live um, on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Sabretooth, uh, also known as West Vancouver. Currently, I'm living in a condo uh, in West Vancouver. This is Sarah telling me why she took the She, They, Us training. Yeah, so I remember when my family immigrated to Canada uh, over 20 years ago, when we were trying to find housing. So we stayed with relatives trying to find housing and uh, for a family of four. And I remember at, even at that time, I remember my parents talking about uh, making their names sound more white for, for the housing applications. I remember them talking about, you know, do you know this person who doesn't have any, who doesn't have an accent that they could be a reference for us when we're trying to get housing? Um, I remember them thinking, okay, well, which one of our friends speaks English really well that could potentially be a reference and um, which one has like the least amount of accent and uh, in our applications. But if we say that we don't have two children and we just say that we're just a couple, what would that happen? What would be the consequences of that? And then talking to their friends about it. And then, so I saw them initially, it was really stressful. Initially, I remember these conversations of them trying to find housing. Um, but growing up, like, I didn't really think about it. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to live with my family who worked really hard to provide housing for us. And then I remember when I was, when I graduated um, from high school and I wanted to find uh, housing near UBC, where, which is where I went. And my family lived in North Vancouver. And so UBC is um, quite a distance away. So I, it took me like almost an hour and 45 minutes or almost sometimes two hours if it was not during rush hour to get home back and forth. And I wanted to live somewhere closer to UBC, um, but I wasn't able to find any housing. So if you were on residence and you're like a 17, 18 year old female trying to get housing with no job, and you were just a student, I wasn't able to find anything. Um, I, again, but I didn't like think about it. I was like, okay, well, maybe it's just because I'm 17 and um, they don't trust that I'll be able to pay rent, even though I had applied for student loans and I, I showed that I had budgeted and all that stuff. Um, and then I didn't really think about housing as like a housing crisis and the difficulties people are really experiencing with housing until I went to nursing school. And when I went to nursing school, I was placed at St. Paul's Hospital for my uh, rotation, one of my first rotations. And I remember I was working with this woman in the hospital um, who I will call Betty. And she was just this amazing, um, very strong, knowledgeable Indigenous woman. And we became really close. And uh, she taught me a lot. And um, I, she taught me, she knew a lot about medications and what she was taking and her conditions um, more than what nursing school taught me. And I remember at the end of the month that we had spent together, I remember going to like the charge nurse and saying, you know, I think that, I think Betty's like ready for discharge. Um, she's, she's up and going to the bathroom by herself. She's taking her medications. Like, I think she'll be able to manage. And I remember their nurse saying, well, where is she going to be discharged to? There's no housing available. Do you see why our floor is completely full? <laughs> because we just can't discharge people. This is why St. Paul's Hospital is called the St. Paul's Inn. We're basically a hotel. And I remember at that point, I was like, holy crap, um, all these people. And 
how much money it's costing us to keep them in the hospital when they could just have housing. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, yeah, this is more than just me and my family's um, struggles with finding housing. It's, it's more than that. It's a societal issue. So a lot of you listening to this may have had similar thoughts, but not everyone ends up taking online trainings early on a Saturday morning for five weeks. So I asked Sarah how she took that next step to action. Hearing my patient stories of injustice and inequity and them experiencing homelessness and difficulties with housing made me think, okay, what is my role as a healthcare provider? How can I advocate for people to live the healthiest that they can live um, outside of a clinical setting? And how can I be involved in advocating for issues that are related to health on a population level? And so I remember like Googling like organizations that work in housing advocacy or um, getting involved with volunteering for housing policies or understanding more about housing policies and um the she they us campaign was one of the ones that came up and then i saw that they had a training that was available um that was going to be starting soon and i thought like okay i'm going to take this and i'm going to try and bring back some of the stories of my patients um to hopefully be able to advocate and be that voice to um to hopefully provide better housing policies and better housing options for ge- for women and gender diverse folks. I asked Sarah how it felt to do the trainings. In my culture, coming from um, the Middle East and being an Iranian Canadian woman, a lot of the times we're taught, you know, just to keep quiet, like don't talk about um, a lot of like issues that um, make you vulnerable, you know, um, just keep your head down, like also be a good immigrant. Um, don't try and like disrupt the systems. Just, you know, do your thing, focus on your own life and um, don't really put yourself out there and don't talk about yourself and don't um, put your personal story out there. So for me, it was like really struggle. And it, and it still is like, I'm still struggling with that because a lot of the times to be an advocate, you're supposed to get out there to talk, to put yourself, you know, front and center um, a lot of the times and to say like, this is my story and this is what I work with. And this is like the stories of my patients and this is what I do. Um, and culturally, I'm just not used to that individualistic kind of storytelling and advocacy. So, um, and I, and this, whole um the campaign training like made me reflect on that and say like why don't I feel comfortable and why is there that discomfort like what is preventing me or what's holding me back to really just put myself out there I asked Sarah what the vision is for her advocacy I think that once I really try to understand issues on a bigger level it made me think okay I really need to do something outside of just like myself and I was thinking that imagine if like all the nurses, um, all the healthcare providers really advocated and formed groups to be involved in something bigger than the clinical setting and to really advocate for housing policies for um, universal pharmacare, which is another, which is another, another issue that I am passionate about. Then we can really, really create change. We all talk in in amongst ourselves as healthcare professionals, like 
oh, this person, you know, has all these mental health conditions, they're suffering from substance use disorder, but they're housed. Okay, that's good. Like, they're so much more stable than I can, like, refer them to this. I think if healthcare professionals really formed groups and coalitions and advocated for housing policies, then we'd definitely be able to see a change. Amongst ourselves, we always talk about how, you know, if someone comes in, for example, to the urgent care center and they, um, and, you know, they want help or support with their substance use disorder. We always talk amongst them ourselves, like, oh, is the person housed? Like, that's the first thing we always ask um, is, and that's what the first thing the social worker asks, um, are they housed? Okay, if they are, that's awesome. Like, these are all the supportive support services that we can give them. This is all the medications we can provide for them. Um, you know, the mental health services we can uh, have them access. We can get like nurses to go to their home and provide care for them. So housing is kind of like that, the root of how people can become healthier. It's like the kind of like the bottom of that pyramid where if someone's housed, then they can really be the healthiest that they can be. In case you're wondering how it's going for Sarah, I actually got to meet her in person at an event a few weeks after we finished the online training. The premier of British Columbia, David Eby, had just been on a stage talking to a large crowd which included dignitaries and cabinet telling a story about a woman who couldn't get housing that he'd heard earlier that night from a nurse who was at the event. Sarah was that nurse. Well, that is almost it for the She, They, Us podcast series. I have so many people to thank, starting with the women and gender diverse people who shared so deeply of themselves with us in their stories as well as the academics, researchers, community organizers, funders, and developers who also gave their time. I want to give a special thanks to Robin Buxton-Potts, who did a huge amount of the back-end work to book interviews and keep this podcast moving while I struggled with a COVID infection in the middle of our production schedule, and to Jane Friedman, who did all of our sound editing and who is always up for taking on any new challenge in support of an important cause. And my final two thanks... First, to my partner on the She, They, Us campaign, Ange Valentini with the Strategic Impact Collective. And finally, to the women and gender diverse people across the country who had the vision to create the pan-Canadian voice for women's housing and the tenacity to keep it going so that future generations of women and gender diverse people will not have to live with the violence and poverty and the housing insecurity that far too many households led by women and gender diverse people have to deal with today. The last word goes to Janice Abbott with the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing. I hope that we've been able to convince you to take up their call to action and use your voice. Thanks for listening and please share these podcasts. People need to hear the challenges that women and gender diverse people are going through for things to change. My hope for the future of the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing is that we are able to provide enough women all across this country um, with the support um, and training and capacity that they need to um, speak in their communities, to speak at the sort of grassroots, municipal, provincial, federal levels. Um, Nothing happens without numbers. And so if we have a little a little or a big army of women across the country who are raising um, these issues in a way where they feel confident um, and emboldened and passionate, 
uh, that that I hope can start to change stuff. And, and that's what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do here is, um, is create these army of women and gender diverse people across the country who are giving politicians and change makers a hard time. This is She, They, Us, a podcast about making room and housing for women and gender diverse people. To find out more about the She, They, Us campaign, you can visit the Pan-Canadian Voice for Women's Housing webpage, where you'll also find resources from this episode and can add your voice to the army of women and gender diverse people fighting to make room in housing.